There we go. I'm Monica. I'm one of the elders here at Watermark. So Tommy and his family are out of town this week. So um, if we can be praying for him and his family just so that they can have a rest and peace, um, that would be really helpful. Keep that on your mind. But also, we have a special guest today. Um, we have Leo, Pastor Leo. He's one of Tommy's peers. And so um, he's going to come up and share with us. So let's make sure he feels welcome. And yeah. It's like 10 degrees hotter up here. Can you guys hear me? All right, cool. So uh, we're going to get into a parable. I love parables. I'm kind of a nerd like that. And uh, first of all, I want to thank you guys for having me today. And I want to thank uh, Tommy for the invite. Tommy and I are our fellow northerners at Northern Seminary. And so it's, uh, it's an honor and a, and a privilege to be here today to share this word. I've been doing this in front of a webcam for the past year, so it's nice to be breathing the same air with other people. Uh, so today's reading is going to be uh, Luke 15. I think it's up there. There it is. All right, Luke 15, 11 through 20. Uh, I'm going to spare you guys from the whole parable because, you know, we got, we got lives. We got things to do after this. Uh, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and, and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Amen. Who's familiar with this parable? Pretty much all of us, I think. Maybe. Um, I'm going to open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, this moment, for this space, for these people. Thank you, Father, for Watermark. And thank you, Father, for your presence, Lord. I pray that you help me to remember my notes, to, to share this message, Father, um, with all that, that you have today for all of us, Lord. We open our hearts and our minds to what it is that you want to speak through me today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. So this thing is kind of, all right. So this is what we're going to do today. We're going to unpack this parable, right? We're all sort of familiar with it superficially. We've all sort of, you know, read it throughout, throughout our, our time in church. We've heard sermons about it. So we're going to unpack it. We're going to unpack it contextually. We're going to unpack it, its cultural context. And sort of alongside this, 
we're going to um, talk about the theology of embrace. One of my favorite theologians, Miroslav Volf, right? Good, good Floridian name, Miroslav Volf. Uh, he calls a theology of embrace. So we're going to, we're going to sort of bring these two worlds together. So let's talk a little bit about reception history, reception history of this parable. Reception history is the way that a text has been interpreted or even appropriated throughout history, right? So historically, the, the focus of this parable has been on the reckless behavior of the youngest brother, right? This has led and prompted a lot of scholars and commentators to give this parable the title of the parable of the prodigal son, right? The youngest is the main character. Um, there has been some scholarship on, on, on sort of the both of the brothers, right? Um, but in general, the focus has been on this wayward son, the youngest. But more recently, scholars have redirected their focus to the father of the story, which is surprising because he's everywhere in the story, right? He sort of bookends this parable. He's in the beginning, and he's at the end giving his eldest son a, a, a lecture or a speech. And then he also, he also acts as sort of this bridge between the first half of the parable and the second half. And what we read here is really the first half of the parable. And I'll fill in the gaps for you guys as we go along. So it's been historically known as the parable of the prodigal son, but I want to actually argue today that this story is very much about a prodigal father as it is a prodigal son. But prodigal in the positive sense, where, where this father is unusually generous, liberal with his love and compassion. His conduct is countercultural, it defies the norms and convention. His behavior in this parable actually fits with what a parable should do, with what Jesus' parables actually tried to do, which is sort of shatter cultural and social expectations. Jesus taught using parables. In fact, the majority of the times that Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God, he uses this device, the parable. And he uses it to sort of destabilize tradition, to give visibility to those on the margins of society, to those that we normally wouldn't want to associate with. So let's, let's take a look at the setting of this parable before we actually go in and dig into this, into the actual story. The setting actually takes place around a table, around a meal. Jesus overhears the grumblings and complaints of Pharisees and scribes, wondering how it is that this this, this rabbi, Jesus, can not only welcome sinners and tax collectors, but he dines with them. He's eating with them. He's passing the potatoes to these folks. What's going on here? He's not only welcoming, but he's eating with them. And this actually violates tradition. This is, he's actually risking defilement in the, eyes of the, in the eyes of the Pharisees. Jesus is risking defilement by having, sharing a meal with these folks. Now, I know this term sinner kind of has, uh, we all have sort of different imaginations about this term sinner, but sinner in that context is actually this factional term used to describe anybody that wasn't part of their group, their tribe, their way of thinking, their way of interpreting Torah. To them, a sinner was anyone who didn't hold to the Pharisaic system, right? So it's not too off from how we sort of imagine it now. It's a term used to lessen somebody's worth and dignity. So essentially, Jesus is sharing this parable before groups of so-called outsiders 
and insiders. Like, this is the setting. This is the, 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 the launch pad for Jesus' parables in this particular context. So he's eating with them as this way to sort of reshuffle their categories. Sharing a meal in the first century was very much about turning the outcast into a friend. A stranger into a sibling, into somebody a part of God's household, new creation family. Eating a meal meant solidarity. And so this is what the Pharisees and the scribes had a problem with. They see Jesus having a meal with outcasts, with outsiders, and to them, this is Jesus saying, I stand in solidarity with them. So now we get into the actual parable. So for the sake of time, let's just get on in this thing, because there's a lot going on in this text. Father, give me the share of the estate that is coming to me. The son's request would have been unheard of in that context. In, in, in Jewish custom, for a son to ask for his father's inheritance, for a share of his inheritance, before he died, was dishonorable. In fact, in early Jewish writings, this was forbidden. It was forbidden for patriarchs, for fathers in that culture, to give away the inheritance while they're still alive. And anybody that would have been listening to this parable would have construed... This as the son essentially wishing that the father was dead. So you could imagine what's, what's going on in the minds of those that are sitting around Jesus as he's sharing this parable. The expectation or their expectation would have been the father, would have been for the father to reprimand this son or to remind him of the Jewish custom. But instead, this prodigal father gives in to his request giving both of his boys their share. We kind of missed that in the first part. But he says he gave them, where's that? Somewhere up there. Both of his sons took their inheritance. Only, the only difference is one, one stayed and one left. All right? And then it says that the son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. No, so... When you look that up in, in the actual original Greek, the, 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 when, he, when it says that he gathered everything that he had, essentially what he did was what he couldn't carry with him, he cast out. He sold it. And this sale in that, in that, in that, in that uh, culture would have been a public sale. All family matters were public knowledge. And this would have brought even more shame and humiliation to this father and to the family name and even to the community. And not to mention that selling off the inherited land and livestock also was a violation of Jewish custom. So he not only brought dishonor to his family, but now he's breaking the law. Like, like this guy's all in. This guy's all in. He knows the rules. He knows the traditions, but he doesn't care. His being a prodigal wasn't so much about running away and blowing his inheritance among the Gentiles. It was very much about his impulsiveness and his utter disregard for the father and for community. Now, in that, in that world, there was this ceremony called the Kizaza ceremony. Say it with me. Kizaza. 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 Sounds like something you put over a nice steak. 
Um, kizaza ceremony. So in that, in that world, right, if a son took his inheritance and lost it among Gentiles, and he dare return to that community, the older men of that community, and this is actually where you could put that slide, the older men in that community would break this large pot in front of this wayward son and cry out for him to be cut off from the community. It was a total banishment from the community. And the word kizaza actually stands for cutting off. It was a cutting off ceremony. So the pot actually symbolized, this broken pot actually symbolized the break-in relationship that the son caused his father and his village. So this, this ceremony was enacted if ever a child was to take that inheritance and inheritance from a father and blow it among Gentiles. And, the, and sort of the reasoning behind the ceremony was that there's a sort of this fear that if we, if we allow this son to come back into the community after doing what he did, it could essentially be a contagion in the community and affect the, the, the youth and give them the impression that, yeah, you can go and, you know, you can do everything that this kid just did. It's okay. We'll, we'll, get you, we'll receive you back in. So there was very much this fear of this bad influence that could spread among the community. So this was not only a total shunning, but it was a way of them to save the community and the continuity of that community. So this kizaza would have been on the back of this youngest son's mind. Like he's probably thinking as he's traveling off into the distant country, he's probably thinking to himself, whatever you do, don't lose this inheritance. Whatever you do, don't blow this money among the Gentiles. And of course, what does he do? He loses his inheritance among Gentiles. And we know it was among Gentiles because he, was, he hired himself off to pig farmers. And so after wasting his inheritance, naturally the ideal thing to do in most cultures is to go back home. But he can't. Because he knows that if he goes back home, he's going to receive a public thrashing from the community. He knows that the kizaza is waiting for him. He knows that he broke every rule in the book. And the only way back is to recoup the money by finding work. And then in verse 15, oh, I'll just read it here. Uh, and then in verse 15, it says that he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. He sent him to his fields to feed pigs. So at this point in the parable, Jesus' audience would have been speechless. Like they would have been outraged. Like after bringing dishonor to his father and family and to his community, after, after selling, you know, that which, which he couldn't carry with him out into the distant country, and now he's, in order to recoup his money and to avoid total banishment, he hires himself out to pig farmers. Like a first century Jewish audience listening to this parable would have been outraged at this point. They would have lost their minds as these insiders and, and outsiders would have been listening to Jesus share this parable, and they would have lost their minds. And one thing I forgot to mention is this is actually the third in a trilogy of parables that Jesus launches off into following uh, the grumblings of the Pharisees, where we have the lost sheep and the lost coin, and then we get into this parable. So 
this is the, the third of a trilogy of parables that Jesus launches off into. Now, then it says, right, that he, that he hired himself out. And so this would have brought, you know, a tremendous amount of outrage to, to, the, to, to the Jewish audience there standing around him. Now, Jesus is a master storyteller. Like, he knows that he's getting a response and a reaction from everybody sitting around him. And he's setting them up for this big surprise. He's setting them up for this, this climax, this crescendo, this peak. And it's coming. And he knows what he's doing because he's an amazing storyteller. And it's all about redefining categories. And it's all about changing the way that they see things. And it's all about destabilizing worldviews and, and all of these things. And so, because Jesus is very much about the other. And he knows that they're not. And then in verse 17, it says that he came to himself. Now, this part of the parable has historically been interpreted that he repented. But actually, scholarship, recent scholarship, actually translates this as he took interest in himself. So as if he wasn't already self-centered, he became even more self-centered. The fact is, the younger son didn't repent. I just realized I have really small ears. Um, the fact is that the, the younger son didn't repent. Homeboy was hungry. He was starving. He realized things weren't going as planned and he needed to eat. And what do we do when our plans fail, everybody? We make more plans. And that's what he did. He assumes that the only way to return was to go back, not as a son, but as a hired hand. Working for his father. That there was no way that his father would receive him back empty-handed. Because he knows the Kizaza is waiting for him. There's no way in his mind that he would be reinstated into the family or back into the community. So he figures, so he figures he could work for his father. That could earn back the money he wasted. Maybe the father will be as generous as he was before. And so he prepares this scripted speech to his father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Like all of a sudden he becomes religious. Um, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. Right? Drenched in remorse. But there's nothing about this that says repentance. The man was simply hungry. And so he set off and went to his father. But while he was still afar off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. And this is where we arrive at Jesus' crescendo. This is where we arrive at Jesus' big surprise. Because at this point, as if they weren't shocked enough, Jesus presents us a father that now foregoes the right to exercise his paternal authority who breaks all cultural norms. And so this son enters the village empty-handed, and he's fully prepared for the kizaza. Like he is awaiting this public shaming. He is awaiting for this pot to be broken in front of him. But the father spots him, and I, I always like to imagine it like he's looking off into the horizon, and he sees like the silhouette of his son breaking the horizon. And the father is immediately met with a rush of emotions, knowing that the villagers also see him. This was an open community. Everybody knew everything about everybody else. 
And so the father, knowing the violence that awaits him, runs out to his son to catch him and spare him, to catch him, to meet him before they do. It's a lot different than how we've understood this parable, man. And now he says that he ran. Now, this is why it's important to understand the culture and the world of the, first, of, of the New Testament. Because patriarchs, older men in the Jewish culture, they didn't run. They were dignified. They walked, right? They had, they had swag, right? Is swag still a thing? Um, it is? Okay. God, I feel old. Um, so they would, they, they would walk, right, in this dignified manner, right? It was all about reputation and name. This was an honor and shame culture, and, 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 and name and reputation meant something. They were the figureheads. They didn't run because to run wearing the clothes that they wore, the robe that they wore, meant that they would have to expose their legs. To run in a robe meant that you had to hike up your robe and bring it up to about mid-thigh, mid and expose all of your legs. And in that culture, it was humiliating for a grown man to expose his legs. It demonstrated weakness and lack of self-control. And, and, and in their mindset, if, if somebody, if, a, if, the, if, the, if, the, if the patriarch of a home lacks self-control, then he can't manage his home. And if he can't manage his, his home, that could potentially infect the rest of the community. Like, that's the mindset. But the father breaking every rule in the book, takes upon himself the shame and the humiliation that was awaiting the son. He runs, partly because he wants to reach the son before the rest of the village can get to him. Because he knew, the father knew, that the kizaza was this irrevocable indictment. If it was executed, there will be no way back. And so he embraces his son and some translations say that he actually fell on his neck, right? That he kissed his neck. Now, I'm Latino. If you didn't notice by now. Um, when I see my dad, I give him a kiss on the cheek. When I see my brothers, I give him, you know, we, we, that's what we do, right? And I know other cultures do that too. Um, and in that culture, when you were equal, when you were in equal standing, you kissed each other on the cheek. But people of lower status would kiss their superiors on the neck. And I want you to understand like, what this father's trying to do here. Everything that he's doing in this is purposeful and intentional and strategic for the sake of sparing his son from the community. So the father essentially assumes this lesser status as a way to elevate the son in front of those who are waiting to banish him. That's a beautiful picture. He was emptied of his desire to get even, to dehumanize, to humiliate. He emptied himself of his categories and his status and his rules and his position in the community, risking shame upon himself to spare the shame that would have fallen on the son. This is a prodigal father. prodigal in the sense that he is wasteful when it comes to his privilege and his position and his status for the sake of elevating the other. In verse 22, the father says to his servants, remember, 
He's being ultra strategic. He says to his servants, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Like they're going, he's going in. The fatted calf, like that's a big deal, guys. Um, Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. This son of mine. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. This reunion would have happened and did happen in front of everybody. And we know that because the father turned to the servants who were right there. Robe and a family ring and shoes like... The father is using these articles to demonstrate to the village that their relationship is healed. That there will be no kizaza today. And the fatted calf, um, New Testament scholar Kenneth Bailey, who does uh, fascinating work on this parable, says that a fatted calf can fit, uh, feed up to 100 people. And so this is the father's way now of causing reconciliation, bringing reconciliation with the son and the community. This father's amazing. A symbol that the son's relationship with the community is healed. There will be no kazaza. So instead he throws him a block party, right? <laughs> That's awesome. Now we get to the second part of this parable. And the elder son comes in from the field and hears music and dancing, like, you know, he's hearing salsa, merengue, and bachata, and all these things. Like, what's going on? Why wasn't I invited? And he calls over a servant who tells him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has come back safe and sound. Now, safe and sound in the Greek is the word hygaino. Say it with me. Hygaino. To be sound and good health. I'm crazy, y'all. Um, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek-translated Old Testament, the word translates to the Hebrew word that w- for peace, shalom. Shalom. So celebration essentially equals shalom between son, father, and the rest of the community. Like, this is what's going on. The celebration isn't so much about the son's return. It's about reconciliation between the son, the father, and the community. It's about shalom over kizaza. Peace over exclusion. Those listening to Jesus tell this story, they would have also heard shalom. They would have correlated the meal that they were having with Jesus as this block party. Imagine how included they would have felt. Man, Jesus is making his case against the Pharisees. And he's saying that this is what the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like sharing a meal and celebrating with those who we'd much rather just distance ourselves from. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. Those we'd rather just criticize for their poor choices or fall in line with others that are humiliating them. Those who violate our social categories or our theology or our political leanings, like Jesus is redefining the social order with this parable. So the eldest son refuses to go in in Spanish, this is what we call it, ñoño. Uh, he's just a spoiled brat. Um, I wouldn't, I'm not going to make you guys try to say that. You've got to do all kinds of things with your tongue. Um, so according to tradition, the father had the right to publicly discipline him. But once again, the father breaks with social protocol and leaves a party that he hosted. You don't do that in this culture. 
when you host a party, especially for 100 people, and you've brought out the fatted calf, like you brought out the good meat, you don't leave the party to go tend to your bratty son. But once again, the father doesn't care about the rules. He cares about relationship. He stands there with his arms. I imagine him with his arms wide open as his eldest, the one that remained, the one that stayed behind, the one that, even though he did take the inheritance when he shouldn't have, but he took the inheritance, but he stayed behind. He didn't, he didn't blow it among the Gentiles. He's standing there as, this, as his eldest now berates him and falsely accuses his brother in plain view of everyone. Shaming the father in the household. And this is all happening in front of everybody. And the father, what does he do? He doesn't, he doesn't fire off on him. He doesn't reprimand him. He doesn't remind him about the Jewish customs or the rules and all this. He endures the shame in order to restore a relationship. Because to him, relationship meant more than tradition and custom. The eldest son is upset because the rules that he lived by was broken by the youngest. He was the one that worked the field. He was the one that never left. He was the one that never squandered his inheritance. He deserved the celebration and the recognition and the fatted calf. Not the one who ran off and disgraced his family. Yet here he is dancing and eating, enjoying a seat at the table, reconciled and reinstated as a member of the family. And, if, and, and I know it wasn't up on the screen, but, but this eldest brother referred to his brother as this son of yours. He didn't want anything to do with him. He didn't want him to be reinstated in the, in the household. He didn't want him to have the family name again. And the elder son just had no space in his framework to embrace and welcome because his obsession was with rules. His obsession was with his, his categories and his preferences and the father just continues to squander his position and his privilege and his status throughout the story for the sake of preserving and elevating the dignity of his sons. All along, he is sparing his sons of the very natural human inclination to see the world based on who's in and who's out. And this worldview fails time after time. Seeing the world based on who's in and who's out will get us nowhere. And all it does is bring harm and pain to people's lives, to those that we categorize as out. I think one of the greatest crimes that we can commit is when we make another human feel like they don't belong. This can be in words or in actions or in our social media activity, or in our body language, or in our lack of eye contact, or in our refusal to empty ourselves of our categories and our checkboxes. We harm people when we refuse to let go of our preferences and our biases, when we choose exclusion over embrace. There's a wonderful book by William Placker called Narratives of a Vulnerable God. And in it, Placker says, I mean, honestly, it's probably one of the most beautiful sentences I've ever read. That's too big. Um, Love cares for the other 
to the extent that it is willing to make one's fate their own. To give to the other at real cost to oneself to chance rejection. As image bearers, as the Imago Dei, we're called to embrace the way this father embraced. To create spaces of reconciliation among those that we are usually closed off to. Among those that we would, we would never really invite over for a meal. To step, in, step foot into our homes. Those who violate our own rules. Those who we choose not to see or hear or give voice to. Those who are outside of our socioeconomic or cultural or even theological framework. The love displayed by this father was scandalous to this first century audience. And in our modern, you know, meritocracy, right, overly individualized world, we only seem to want to eat with those who think like us, to those who theologize like us or vote like us or parent like us or do life like us. And we'll never be able to spare people from the kizazas of life with this worldview. This parable gives us a snapshot of a God who is prepared to love to the extent of humiliation. A prodigal father who loves at risk of being called negligent and reckless. Like this whole thing started because Jesus was eating with people he wasn't supposed to be eating with. And I'm not here, like, standing on my ivory tower pretending like I've figured this out because I haven't. But the image of this father is a guidepost for us. Like, Jesus gives us a picture of a father who chooses time after time to embrace rather than exclude. And he mirrors that back to us. Like, we shouldn't just get stuck in the story of the Father, but Jesus is mirroring that back to us and saying, this is how you order your life. This is the charge upon our, our lives as believers, to strive to cross over our own social constraints and our rules and our checkboxes to love the other. Those we find the most difficult to love, and, and we all have them, right? Sometimes it's family, just saying. Um, but I love them, and we love them, and, and we're called to love in this extravagant way. And it, uh, sure, it's a process, but this father serves as a guidepost for us to pursue. And it's not this superficial or performative love, but a love like, like that, what we see with this father. A love that restores, a love that offers healing, a love that forgives. A love that is willing to decenter the self and center the other, that is willing to lessen our status in order to lift up the dignity of somebody else. A love that is willing to chance criticism and the terror of public opinion in order to elevate the other. Because when we choose exclusion over embrace, we exclude someone that Jesus would have dined with. Someone that Jesus will go out of his way to welcome and share a meal with and tell a story on behalf of in the face of those that are choosing to exclude. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, 
Thank you for this, this time and these people. And thank you for your word, Father. My hope and my prayer is that you continue to work in us the will and the desire to love the way that you love, extravagantly, wastefully, recklessly, at cost to our own reputation. Help us to love the way this Father loved. Help us to open up spaces where we can share meals with and embrace and elevate the status of others that we would normally want to stay away from, others that we would much rather be distanced from, others that we find difficult to love because they don't think like us or they don't, they don't uh, do life like us. Help us, Lord, to embody this love and to share with the world what your kingdom looks like. And it looks like a meal around a table with everybody. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Leo. Um, if you guys want to stand together, we're going to say the Lord's Prayer as a church, nice and loud. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and power and glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, grace and peace. I hope you guys have an amazing day. And next week, if you're vaccinated, no masks. We'll see you then.